This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 3rd of November, and we're here today with my fabulous co-host, who is always effective, Jon. Oh, thank you, my, well, I guess also effective, but not machine learning based co-host, Dave. (laughs) I thought you were going to say I was part of the team. Um, yes, but there's always the good and the bad part of the team. So I don't want to make any value statements here. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to go there. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I can understand that. And that being said, the better part of this team today is going to be our guest, Keith McCormick. Indeed. He's going to talk about effective machine learning and how to build teams around it and recruitment and retention and all kinds of other fun stuff. So. Uh, a conversation so good that it ended up being a two-parter. <laughs> yep, we were able to kind of put the more technical part in this episode and we'll have the more organizational and definitely not less important or less interesting part in uh, next episode. So there will not be a news episode in between. We'll have these back-to-back for you. And with that, I'd say let's uh, pass it on to Keith. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Keith, welcome to the uh, Roaring Elephant podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, you're joining us uh, as a, a subject matter expert, I would I would guess, on all things predictive analytics and, and machine learning. Yeah, I've been building uh, predictive analytics models, depending on when you start counting, about uh, 25 years now. Wow. And so how introduce yourself to the audience a little bit. How did you uh, how did you find yourself in this in this interesting, exciting, wonderful land? Well, I would have um, I would describe it as starting out with more traditional uh, models initially, you know, your logistic regression type stuff, because I was Mm -hmm. contemplating a Ph.D. when I was in my uh, uh, late 20s. So this would be the, the late 90s and uh, needed to pay the bills uh, while I was contemplating uh, graduate school and got a chance Mm -hmm. to teach introductory statistics software classes. Mm -hmm. But that experience led me uh, indirectly into uh, uh, one of the earliest predictive analytics workbenches. And that's how I got into the more machine learning side of things. Okay. And you've been um, so you're you're currently sort of independent uh, consultant in this in this sort of space, but you've spent time, you know, as a as a training as as sort of researcher, um, and sort of in in a variety of different areas. But it's all been pretty much focused around this analytics and machine learning space. Yes, so the way the way I've been describing it lately is you can kind of divide my career into into three. You know, started out with the statistics software training, mm-hmm. but then SPSS Inc. bought um, a small company that you probably have never heard of called ISL, um, and they made a product that uh, used to be called Clementine. I don't know if either of you have heard its old name. It's now an IBM product. In fact, uh, kind of a, a fun trip that I had just about a year ago as I went to the 25th anniversary party of this uh, Clementine software. The guy who invented it is up in northern Scotland, and that was my first trip to Scotland. So there was a lot of scotch involved and reminiscing about uh, you know old times. But 
since I mastered that software, that kind of sent me into the second third of my career, which was more the predictive analytics consulting, bu building models for organizations. Mm. Then I briefly worked for an IBM partner um, company, small consultancy, running their analytics team. And after that, I've kind of entered into this new phase where I work more with the people that run the teams, helping them run the teams, sort out who they want to hire, how to grow the team, and so on. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to be talking about a lot of these kind of topics um, around around the teams and 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 that side of things. But maybe first, just kind of set set some of the um, some of the ground rules, I guess. Like when when do you think um, machine learning and um, predictive analytics is when is it particularly effective and maybe yeah as a counterpart where are some areas where it's it's still lacking in its in its effectiveness or where where do people kind of fail with using machine learning and, and predictive analytics well there's there's a number of different ways to look at this but um i had a very interesting experience two winters ago you know it was around the the christmas holiday and obviously the consulting world slows down around that time and I decided I finally had to figure out why suddenly we had to call everything AI. You know, we, we weren't calling everything AI five years ago. So it, was it just a shift in the name? You know, was it hype cycle or was something going on? And I think you can really identify one particular event. It's when Jeffrey Hinton, the famous computer scientist, won the ImageNet competition. And that really gave birth to deep learning and this new uh, kind of um, neural net renaissance that we're going through now. So I think one way to put it is that if you think about the things that have been so successful since then, just the several years since 2012, so you've got AlphaGo, you have um, Amazon Echo. I have to make sure not to use the other name because I have one of those devices on my desk here near the, near the <laughs> microphone. We'll start talking to us. Uh, and... Um, medical imaging, uh, radiology has gotten a lot of press, uh, autonomous vehicles, and so on, right? Those are all the areas that really have changed a lot in the last several years. Almost everything else has not. Uh, loan defaults, um, you know, predictive maintenance and manufacturing, uh, insurance fraud, and so on. And that's, that's, those areas have really been my bread and butter for uh, for many, many years. So I think it's partly figuring out when is traditional machine learning going to make sense and when is this newer, fancier stuff going to make sense. And I think even everyday people can intuitively kind of figure it out. If it's natural language processing or it's image related, um, mm. I've been working with a new client that does uh, video annotation. You know, uh, it has all kinds of cool applications like uh, shoplifting uh, prevention and stuff like that. But I think people intuitively know if it's speech or video or images, then it's this new stuff. But everything else hasn't changed that much. So the first thing I ask executives to think about is have they truly addressed all the more straightforward stuff yeah. and cross that off their list? before they get involved with the stuff that's fancier because that's where they're going to get their ROI because it's uh, that th those are the kinds of projects you can do in six months is the traditional stuff. Yeah. 
do you get a lot of do you get a lot of pushback from that because they i mean we we jokingly call it ai washing or ml washing or like we we hear this so often it's not just machine learning and ai although i do like to pick on them for this but we we see so many areas where people are just convinced oh I, i'm so far behind because i i haven't you know converted everything i do into uh, a neural network and as you say like, yeah. the the reality is so much of it is like the the benefit over traditional kind of statistical approaches from what we've done so far is relatively minimal but you get so much desire from from people who who you know they they get caught up in the hype cycles absolutely absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more so the way i've heard one um client exec put it is um he made um made a comment i think the phrase was something like and now we're doing real ai <laughs> and by that he meant tensorflow you know if it wasn't if it wasn't deep learning then it wasn't quote real ai you know so <laughs> No, I'm not saying there's there's never value in that, but gosh, yeah. I, I don't think this is about keeping up with your friends, you know, or showing off to your friends. It's about whether or not you're going to get ROI. So for me, those um, deep learning is, to say last resort, people are going to probably think I mean something other than what I do. What I'm saying is just make sure that you're doing the straightforward stuff. Tom Davenport, the famous business author, um, he likes to talk about uh, what he calls boring projects, and I have another. I have another friend that loves to talk about his clients being big, boring companies. And he, you know, he, that's <laughs> that's a term of endearment for him. You know, I, I think what you want to do is make sure that you've done all the quote boring projects before you worry about NLP. You know, on your uh, customer service interactions. Yeah, I've got a I've got a colleague. Uh, hi, Alex. Uh, who says that whenever they go to neural networks, they kind of given up. They've tried to do it the classic way and it doesn't work. So they just dump it all in neural network and hope something comes out of it. But the thing that they lose is explainability. Maybe the thing spits out a one or a zero, but you have no idea anymore why. And the classical systems, the, the regressions, the forests are a lot more intuitive to still follow why it actually does what it does. And being able to intuitively compare the results with, yes, this feels right or wrong, it's very important with the neural network. I guess it's one. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of always and never rules in this business, but I, I have one that I would put in the always category. If yeah. someone comes to me with a black box model, I want to know what the accuracy of the best transparent model that they tried was so that when they say, Keith, I think that we should present the black box model to the client. I want to know that the rationale is, is that it's four points more accurate than the transparent model or something like that. So if someone comes to me and you can expect, usually it's, you know, it's someone that's right out of a uh, data science, uh, you know, program. So they, they've got the theory really down solid, but um, maybe they haven't done a lot of, um, haven't had an opportunity to do a lot of projects yet. And they start with deep learning. They don't even try anything else. Yeah. Because I want to know what that trade-off is. I know that that's the first thing that an executive is going to ask me. Okay, we went black box, Keith, but wh why did we go black box? What what did we what did we get in exchange for losing that transparency? And I want a concrete answer. I want to say that this is three points, four points better. So therefore, 
um, on a monthly basis, we can measure the return on investment. So when someone presents a black box model to me and they didn't even try a transparent model, I just send them right back. I, I just think that mm. you should not do it that way. Yeah, because it's not a free choice, is it? I mean, when you do this, you actually have to deploy a lot more hardware and a lot more software resources to do the neural network stuff. Machine learning, the traditional way, you can pretty much do on even on your laptop, on a decent computer workstation still works. But the moment you go into neural networks, it's not just a choice on software you make, you make a choice as well on resource necessity because you're going to need a lot more data and probably GPU equipped harder, whatever. So if you can't, as you say, demonstrate the four point improvement at least, how do you ever justify the added expense of doing it? Even if you do it in the cloud, it's still going to be more expensive usually. Well, yeah, so I think the trick is, I think if someone is really trying to advocate for the more complicated model, what they'll probably try to get away with is calculating the overall return on investment on the whole project. But if I was in the room, I wouldn't let them get away with that. I, I, wanna, I want them to justify the incremental gain because it might be rather small. And, and, and that's why in many cases you end up not going the route of the more complicated model, because if it's only, let's say, one and a quarter percent more accurate, then how on earth are you going to justify possibly having to move it to the cloud or having to get more hardware or whatever it might be? Some of these deep learning models are incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like on that point, how... How do you put a price on transparency? How how do you kind of balance? Do you literally look at well, you know this this is like one and a half points more effective, which over you know a year will save us potentially up to a million dollars. Is it literally that simple, or is is the how, I mean, yeah, the, the transparency to me, on the one hand, seems very simple. You can put a financial number against it, potentially. But on the other, like you've lost that ability to explain decisions. You phrase that in, a, in, in an insightful way, I would say, because what you've identified is that there's two aspects of the value, right? I would mm. say that Transparent versus opaque would mm. be very difficult to quantify. That's really yeah. senior management's decision. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you could use algebra, let's say, to figure out what the added value of the transparency was. But what I mm. do want to present to that executive so that they can make a good decision is, is that one is one and a half points more accurate than the other, and that one and a half more accurate I can quantify but I agree with you, again, a very good point, that you really can't quantify the subjective decision about the value of the transparency unless you're measuring how much trouble, and it's going to be considerable, to explain mm. the black box. Then you have to do a whole other project on top of the first project, and you could look at that from a labor standpoint and a bandwidth standpoint, that it's going to take us another six weeks to build a um, XAI model to explain the black box. But you you could also get the again like it, it's a it, it's it would be a, a fairly complex thing with a lot of guesswork. You could also I'm guessing look at well you know how many times 
are we likely to need to explain our decision on this? I mean, you mentioned earlier things like, um, you know, loan payments, or sorry, um, loan um, sort of sides of things, or, you know, it could be anything like people being uh, denied a certain service or something like that. You know, how often does the request to need to explain that denial come up? If it comes up incredibly infrequently, then you know, maybe that's something to factor in. If it comes up very frequently, that probably factors in at, at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, you know, I think, um, yeah, so let's take two quick examples. Let's say, let's say it was going to be loan denial or you were, you know, they were high risk of default. So therefore, mm. you're going to, you know, you're going to deny. Um, applications like that, usually it's a regulatory requirement and mm. you always yeah. have to have an explanation. So the, um, the simplest form, um, the one that I somewhat favor, I mean, if I go that route, I've certainly deployed some black box models. Sometimes it is the way to go. Um, one, one method to explain the model is what's called a surrogate model. So you build the mm -hmm. fancy model that generates the risk score, and then you have a simpler model um, that then explains the, you know, the first one, and you can somewhat use them in parallel. So uh, an interesting example like that that I always use is um, if someone's just applying for a loan, they can, there's countless websites um, I'm sure in different markets, they, you know, have different competitors, but mint.com, credit karma, these, these kinds of companies. And what you'll find is, is that you, you, if you use them to generate your, um, credit score, and then you go to the bank for a new mortgage, the scores won't be identical. And that's because the scores that you get for free on these websites are what they call educational scores. And I find that that's a metaphor that executives can relate to. It kind of makes sense. You have the you have the fancy, expensive, complicated model, and then you have the simpler, quote, educational, you know, score. So that way you can have the added accuracy of the black box model, but you always have some model that you can refer to that's a simplified proxy of the first. Yeah. yeah. And... I mean, a couple of times during this, you've touched on the topic of ROI and and sort of calculating the ROI or the importance of the ROI. One of the things that you know we've been pretty consistent on throughout the the history of this podcast is that you know technology should either be you know saving you money or making you money, preferably both of those things in some way, shape, or form. If you're if you're deploying some new tech in your enterprise. Like that, that needs to be part of it. But they, how often do you see people getting like swept up in the hype without considering the ROI? Oh gosh, all the, all the time, because usually <laughs> the modelers, if they don't have a lot of field experience, the mm. modelers want to get an accurate model first and then socialize the model within the organization. So they'll literally be working secretly on something that if it works is going to be transformative in the business. And I think that's ultimately foolish. So in yeah. my own work, I won't proceed. If, if, uh, you know, if the client doesn't want to do a back of the envelope estimate of ROI upfront before we even start working, they're just not the right client for me. So, you know, so I suppose if I was, if I was 30 again and, you know, just starting out, um, maybe I would be 
more flexible on that rule. But but for me, at this stage in my career, that's a deal breaker. If we if we can't have if we can't have that kind of conversation about how will the model be utilized, how can we measure success? If if they're either not interested in that conversation or they want to postpone it until after we have some kind of a prototype, they're not the client for me. Yeah. And so you again you touched on something really uh, we've we've covered we've touched on a few times before, which is this this juxtaposition between people that have domain experience versus people that have technical experience. And I in 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 a previous life, the number of times I see like a bunch of fresh out of some educational sort of establishment folks being like drafted in. And like all of a sudden, right, this is, this is my machine learning team. This is my AI group. And like these people have no industry kind of domain expertise in, in the area that they're, they're being asked to revolutionize. But it's like, oh, it's okay. We'll, we'll just plop this one person into that team who knows all about our business and, and that'll, that'll make up for it all. What's, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I, I guess uh, at the risk of being devil's advocate, I think that what you describe isn't so crazy mm. if the modeling team is utilizing that subject matter expertise effectively. But that's the trick. Mm. Most people, most people don't. So um, the metaphor that comes from uh, comes to mind for how most people want to utilize that subject matter expert is um, kind of like the the secret conversation at lunch, you know, you get like a corner booth at your favorite, uh, you know, restaurant and you chit chat about you, uh, you know, about the subject matter experts experience. And they kind of scribble some thoughts on a cocktail napkin. And you take this secret knowledge back to your laboratory and, and whip up a model. That's the, that, that, that's the flawed notion about how that works. What it's really about is periodically, um, at least once a week, kind of sitting down with that subject matter expert. And one of the main things that you're doing is trying to separate bona fide discoveries that you're making as opposed to something about the data that's misleading you. It could be the provenance of the data. It could just be a fluke because remember this, we're always subject to random forces when you do this kind of work. In machine learning, we fool ourselves into thinking that we have census data because we supposedly have all the data. You never do because you, you got to pull a training partition. Um, you know, we're recording this in, uh, in, in 2020. We don't have 2021's data, you know. Um, so people forget that they're exposed to sampling variation for all those reasons you have to periodically check in with the subject matter expert for a reality check so it's not the sme gives you the secret knowledge and then you encapsulate the secret knowledge in math form that's the simplified version that people think it is it's this periodic checking in do you believe what the model's telling us do you have a reason not to believe it um, why would you say that? Are you surprised this variable's included? Are you surprised that the model didn't like the variable you mentioned and it left it out? Those kinds of conversations. And there's an art to it. And I would, uh, I usually say that it takes about three projects for someone to get even just competent at this. One where they're mostly watching and they're just doing what yeah. they've been asked to do, you know, by their mentor. A second time where they're starting to take on some responsibilities, but there's always somebody you know, a phone call away when they need them. 
And a third time that I guess is kind of like the equivalent of, a, I've never flown a plane, but I, I guess the equivalent of like a solo flight <laughs> where there's someone on ground watching you, but you're alone in the plane, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and until you, you've had those three projects from start to finish, you probably won't have the skills to properly interview an SME. It's not something you can just intuit. Yeah. And I suppose the other, the other thing that sort of seems to come around these, these same kind of areas is, is that of, of bias as well. Um, in, uh, in, in the, both in the way that people consume the, the, the data and understand the, the information that they're, they're trying to portray in, in their understanding of the domain and their level of expertise in that, but also in, in just the way that they end up implementing things. So it, I suppose, are there any, are there any sort of, I guess, golden rules or are there any sort of, sort of, um, areas that you think people can, can put more focus on to try and, um, reduce the level of bias that sort of gets introduced into some of these situations? Yeah, um, I'll tell you what I think the biggest one is, is that it's related to what we were just talking about with the subject matter expert, is people want to look where they've been told, you know, in the, you know, usually we're pulling data from a, from a data warehouse. So usually people will want to pull data from the same places that, let's say, are already cleaned and ready to go. That would be ready for BI reports or dashboarding or whatever it might be. So they chat with the SME, the SME gives them some hints, and they go and look in the most promising place first. And if that doesn't work out, then they circle back and they try to get a little bit more creative. Um, there's another reason why there's pressure to do it that way, and that's because in a lot of organizations, they're trying to do things in two-week sprints. You know, and that potentially gets us in the whole crazy, you know, topic of agile and is software development, like building models and so on. But but if you're under pressure to constantly have a new prototype every couple of weeks, you'll tend to behave that way. And it's ultimately not the most efficient way. And it can introduce bias because you're only looking where you've been told to look. So how are you going to how are you going to make a truly transformational discovery if your attention is only focused where everybody is else? else's attention is. So I think casting a wide net is the metaphor that I would use. You really have to try to systematically look everywhere. And that means spending a lot more time on data assessment and data prep than most people are willing to do. Because if you're looking everywhere, if you're not allowing your, um, you know, your opinion, opinions and the opinions of others to tell you where to look and you're ignoring everywhere else, then you're going to fall prey to that. But if you're systematically looking everywhere, no stone unturned, then you're less likely to run into bias. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, Jan had a had a question, possibly a sarcastic question. Yeah. I would never do sarcasm. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's just maybe it's just me, but I've been working in this world for in this. Uh, land of machine learning artificial intelligence for a while now and there's this thing that solves all problems it's called auto ml you just oh, use auto ml and it, it have your roi you have explainability it's all there i mean we're, that's it right we've reached nirvana at this point tell me i'm right come on yeah <laughs> 
Okay, so where do where do I begin? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've you've just turned a a, a simple uh, conversation into what will probably become a trilogy now with uh, uh with uh, with auto and Um Yeah, so the 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 quick version is is that I'm a fan of crisp DM, which I imagine some people have heard of, but possibly some people haven't. So that's the cross industry standard process for data mining. And that was that was written over a three year period in the late 90s. So the, re the reason I bring this up is that now that I've mentioned it, most people probably have come across the phases, you know, you start with business understanding and data understanding and then data prep, and then fourth phase is modeling. They started making progress on automating uh, what uh, people sometimes call a tournament of algorithms. Gosh, I mean, that process started 15 or more years ago and they've made tremendous progress on that you know there's there's only so many algorithms there's only so many parameters that you can adjust or usually if it's adjustments to the model people call it hyperparameters as a to not confuse it with like a parameter in a regression model you know it's the adjustments you make to the algorithm mm -hmm. so there's only so many of these you can do so if you're willing to just let the thing start and let it run for several hours, it will run every algorithm you've got. And that works great. The problem is, is that although they've been trying for years, AutoML has made less progress on what the human does during data exploration and what the human does during data prep. Because data prep's not just cleaning. It's not just taking a log transform of everything that doesn't look like a bell curve. It's a lot more subtle than that because it's tied to business processes. So that's where you run into trouble. So I wish that more vendors would take seriously that AutoML has to be a collaboration between a human expert and the software because it can absolutely save that human expert time. But when AutoML turns into more the self-service or the citizen data scientist, then you get into trouble because there's really important steps that they have not figured out how to replace the human. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, I'm, not, I'm gonna say scares me most is uh, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. But apart from doing the let's do every model and pick the right one automatically, it's also not the auto feature generation where you leave the machine also to to have the insight to know which of the features are intelligent or important enough from a model and how they would correlate and not compete with each other. And that's where I think the domain expertise of the person is very important to find, to, to decide which of my fields in my data set actually have value and which are correlated and shouldn't be used. If you also push that to the machine, if that works well, if that's something the machine does well, then that's great. And that's, I mean, at that point you can really take all the human bias out of it. But on the one hand, I see a lot of uh, of the big companies in this market look at auto feature generation today, but I don't really trust that they have it figured out, as you say. Yeah. You know, there's um, a, a quick quote and then a, a, a metaphor. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, uh, Claudia Perlick. She's a, a world-class data scientist, and, and she's, she's fairly well-known for having won a number of these big machine learning competitions, mm -hmm. you know, earlier in her career. And I saw an interview with her and she she said, you know, we call it data science. I don't know if I'm going to quote her exactly right here, but she says that, you know, we call it data science, but it's really craft. Yeah. 
it's like making shoes is the is the comparison that she uses you know you have to make about a thousand of them before before you're any good so in other words she explains model building like an artisan you know i suppose a, mm -hmm. a similar metaphor would be like a bespoke suit you know on savile row or something you know and i don't i don't think that's the metaphor that comes to mind with something like auto ml you know but there's there's a lot of craft there and i love that word craft as applied to this yeah. um yeah, human intuition, craft, art, even. It's it's uh, a very biological problem. <laughs> and the tools are there to help. The tools never solve the problem. They help the human solve the problem, ideally. So so, so here's a, um, and I love that topic, by the way, Jan, because I'm, I'm definitely passionate about that. Because I, I think if, if vendors, if, if vendors weren't trying to sell AutoML, you know, to the masses, right, which, which often seems to be the goal, yeah. that, you you want it you want to get something that's so simple to use that you're just flipping the switch and it's the machine learning equivalent of a point and click camera you know I, I think I think that's the wrong approach but you know again I'm not I'm not approaching this like a um, VP of marketing selling self service analytics you know I'm, I'm thinking that more from how could a tool like that help me you know uh, which is rather different I suppose so the way I like to think of it it's like autofocus on a nice uh, DSLR camera, you know, I, I, I'm an expert with a, with a camera. I play around with them. I, I think, uh, you know, as a technology, you know, they're amazing. And, I, and frankly, I'm the kind of person where almost every picture I ever take is on auto. But I like, <laughs> I, I, I like to be able to know that I can turn that off. And that's what, you know, justifies the, the, yeah. the fancy price, right? So, of course, I want autofocus on the camera. Why wouldn't I want autofocus? But I want to be able to override that. So mm -hmm. if AutoML is automating tasks for me, but either it's not explaining to me what it did or I can't turn it off, now we're in dangerous territory. Now, now I'm uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it might be saving me time. It might even help me produce a better model, but I have to know what's going on so that I can reproduce it at deployment. Yeah. It's a trust thing, right? You need to be able to trust the machine that, okay, I, I don't exactly know how he did it, but I can follow his train of thought, if I, could, if I could say that, to see how he ended up in that conclusion. And yeah, I can stand behind that. And if it's something in medical research, cancer research, something like that, you need to have some certainty in there. You can't just put it in the machine and hope it all works. And I'm not trying to be anti-technology. I love technology. I live my life in technology. It's just there's a there's still a borderline at, at a certain space where you shouldn't cross over or at least be very careful and be knowledgeable about what you're doing when you go over that step to give it all to automation. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, a, a similar metaphor while we're talking about fancy, you know, cameras, you know how in uh, Photoshop, I don't know if you're both Mac folks, you know, but in Photoshop or in other things, if you edit a photo, you can click on the little magic wand you know, and if your uh, you know brother or mom or something is uh, is uh, in in shadow because they were in a dark corner, you click on the magic wand and adjust the light, and now things look better. But you can do Control Z and undo that, and you know, uh, try to fix it yourself. You know, that's that that's what more Auto ML tools need is the mm. equivalent of an undo. You know, oh, go ahead, Auto ML, go for it, try it. But if but if my if I apply my business evaluation skills and it doesn't suit the business problem, then I'm going to do some kind of manual override to that 
uh, to that model. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, um, really appreciate uh, everything we've run through so far, Keith. Uh, it's been great chatting with you, but uh, I think there's there's more to cover. So I think we'll be we'll be back with part two, and we're going to talk more about the 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 people side of ML, building teams, hiring, even retaining folks. And uh, so I look forward to uh, look forward to part two. That'll be great. I do as well. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. And thank you very much, Keith. This was the first part of the interview we had with Keith about all things machine learning and especially how to be more effective in machine learning. Um, I think it was very interesting. I'll learn a lot again, and I'm looking forward to part two. Yeah, great, great chat with Keith. Really interesting topic. Very, a very topical topic, <laughs> some might say, given uh, everything that's going on at the moment. But no, great conversation. Uh, excited for part two. And if our listeners want to hear more from Keith in between the two episodes that we're putting out, he is on LinkedIn Learning, so you can visit that uh, site and find some courses he has available there. It's a whole bunch of them now. But until next week, it, this is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast. You can become a Patreon if your contribution helps. Thank you, Patreons. We love you. We're on YouTube. You can hit the notification bell, subscribe, like, and do all the YouTube stuff that Dave Laff loves so much. You can go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to a Patreon page and more information about the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter using the at roaringelephant tag, and you can send feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is Machine, and learning comes next week. Jon? My name is, I suppose, there's <laughs> a, quite a poor training data set based around me, Dave. And... Well, regardless, we still look forward to talking to Dave and our audience again next week. Goodbye. See you then. <laughs>